0: I'd love you to turn to Romans, if you have a Bible with you, Romans chapter 1. My hope this morning, I want to talk about confidence in the Gospel, having confidence in our Gospel. And I hope at the end of it, I hope the net effect of our time together in the Word of God will be uh, that you will feel more confident of the Gospel, uh, its effect in our society, in your city, in our nation, uh, and in your own life. And Paul obviously was very confident as an apostle when he wrote Romans that he could be a blessing to the church in Rome. In fact, he said in uh, Romans chapter 1, I long to come to you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. He was desperate to get among them as a people and uh, to really impart the grace of God on him to them and to be a blessing. So we could say, first of all, that he was committed to being an apostle, but also he was very clearly an apostle set aside for this gospel the gospel we're going to be talking about this morning it says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 2 Paul a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God so he describes himself these two halves if you like that he is definitely called to be an apostle no doubt but set apart for the gospel of God he regularly teaches that kind of clarity about his calling. It says in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4, he says, 3 and 4, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. It says the same in Philippians 1 verse 16. I am put here for the defense of the gospel. If you want another one, just to prove that what I'm saying is true and found in the Bible, Ephesians 6 verse 19 says, Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador. So there's no doubt really that Paul feels very connected with this gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He feels like his life has been set aside for it. He's an apostle set aside for the gospel. So what is the gospel of God? What is the gospel that Paul has been so committed to? And I want to talk about this morning. First of all, it was a gospel summarizing the whole of scripture. Paul says that earlier in Romans chapter 1, promised beforehand through the prophets, confirmed by the Holy Spirit, This gospel is really a confirmation, if you like, a coming together of all of Scripture. All of the Old Testament came together in the gospel, the coming of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. As Paul again says in the earlier verses of Romans chapter 1, the gospel of God's Son with power. So he describes the gospel. So it was a gospel summarizing the whole of Scripture. We know it was Christ-centered, so we can say there is a person, in the gospel. We know it was cross-centered, so there was an action at the center of the gospel, and we know that it was Holy Spirit-centered, so there is the promise of a radical new life for everybody who believes the gospel by faith for themselves. So that's really as a way of introduction. I want us now to read Romans chapter 1, hopefully being helped by that introduction, verse 16. John Stock, by the way, says that these verses we're about to read are the text of which the rest of Romans is the exposition. But John Stott, a famous commentator, says. So Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, very famous, well-known verses. If you're a Christian and have been even for a few years, you'll recognize them. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew." Then for the Gentile, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their own wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what was being made, so that men are without excuse. Let's pray together. Father, we do want to thank you for Your word, we thank you for this gift to us that we have your disclosure, your relationship, if you like, in print with us, that we can read about it, we can feel it in the pages of your book. We thank you for that. Thank you for the blueprint it offers us for our own life. And we invite you right now, we ask you, Holy Spirit, continue to be present with us in this room. We invite your friendship and your ministry right now as we seek to look just over these few moments, really, these verses. We want them to come alive. We want them to have power to change us. We ask for that. Holy Spirit, come and be our teacher. Apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a number of points I want to draw from the verses that we've read. And the first one, which won't surprise you, is just titled, I Am Not Ashamed. Of the gospel. That's what Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now it's interesting when you do a bit of study on that first opening verse that we read there together, the commentators, some of them attempt something which is a bit unusual. They uh, try and suggest that Paul is using a literary form of understatement when he writes this phrase, I am not ashamed of the gospel. A bit like somebody saying, I'm not amused, when really they're saying, I'm really, really angry. So when Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, some commentators say what he's really saying is he is completely proud of the gospel. He's completely confident of the gospel. Now, I'm sure all of us could understand that. And I think some paraphrased texts even read, I am proud of the gospel, instead of the literal translation, which says, I am now not ashamed of the gospel. And John Stott again says in his commentary, this is grammatically possible, but psychologically misguided because Paul is not known for using his literary understatement. He doesn't do that. He doesn't kind of say things in a confusing way. He really says what he means most of the time, it seems. And also, every one of us, if we're honest, know that we have to work through insecurity with the gospel. So for Paul to say, actually, I've worked through to a place where I am now not ashamed of the gospel, I think every one of us can identify with that, thinking there have been times, maybe there are times in my everyday life where I feel like I lack confidence with the gospel. So my hope this morning is, as we go through the next half an hour or so, is that we gain confidence in the gospel. And like Paul, we can say, actually, now, I am not ashamed of it, actually. I do have confidence in the gospel. Jesus himself said, didn't he, that we stand in the risk that Paul is describing. He says in Luke 9, verse 26, if anyone is ashamed of me or my words, so he knew Jesus, clearly it was a possibility. He said, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. And Paul knew the risk of feeling vulnerable and exposed in proclaiming this gospel. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for example, he says, for the message of the cross, he's talking about the gospel that he's proclaiming, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 1, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. He says, Jews demand a miraculous sign and Greeks look for wisdom, but we simply preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. It's no wonder in the very next chapter of Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, because he's coming into this mixed audience where he can't please anybody because he's got Jews over here on one side who are saying well do a miraculous sign then and you've got Gentiles over here who have got their Greek thinking fully in gear who are saying well you better be really impressively wise and intellectual and Paul says and all I've got to give them is the gospel no wonder I went with fear and trembling I'm right in the middle and the guys over here are demanding a miraculous sign. Guys over here are demanding intent, intellectual integrity. And all I can say is this. Jesus Christ came. He lived a sinless life. He was killed by those he created. He was raised up on the third day. He was seen by many. He ascended to the Father. And if you believe in him, you can be forgiven and have a relationship with God. The Greeks aren't satisfied, it's not intellectual. The Jews aren't satisfied because it isn't really a miraculous sign. And yet for all those who believe, it becomes the wisdom of God. So Paul knew exactly what it was actually to work through a place really of lacking confidence, fear, maybe even trembling about the gospel. And I guess you do too. I do at times, have known great times, when I've lacked confidence with the gospel. If you look up the word ashamed in a thesaurus, it uses words like this, to feel hum- humiliated, <clears throat> to feel humbled, to feel dishonoured, to be shown up, snubbed, confused, to feel disgraced, to cut a poor figure, to hide one's face, to hang one's head, to be in another one's black books. Have you ever had those moments, Really? where you're in the middle of a situation with unbelievers in your workplace or in college, wherever it is, and you think, if I pipe up now and say, I'm a Christian and I think Jesus is the answer, they will never speak to me again. I will feel humiliated. I know I'll be in their black books. If I tell them now what what they're doing actually isn't the answer, but the answer, actually, I know that I'm in danger of being snubbed. I don't think there's a believer alive who doesn't know that feeling. A famous preacher called James Stewart once said, there's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless you have been tempted to feel ashamed of it. I'll say that again. He said, there is no sense in declaring that you are not ashamed of something unless you have been tempted to feel ashamed of it. You know, there's no value, there's no weight at all in me saying, I am not ashamed of my four-year-old daughter, Martha. I think, well, Of course you're not. You love her. You adore her. And I do. I've never felt ever ashamed of my daughter. Ever. And I would never do. So it's a completely pointless comment, isn't it? But there are things I have felt ashamed of. And once you've had to work through that, when you actually say, I'm no longer ashamed of that, you think, actually, wow. He really has worked through it to a place of confidence. So Paul in 2 Timothy 1 and other places, he gets to the point of saying, yet I am not ashamed because I do know whom I have believed. And Paul has got to that point really where he knows that he has worked through all of that issue really and he says in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And he begins to explain why. And I want us to go through for the rest of the talk to really understand why could Paul get to that place of saying that he is now not ashamed of the gospel. So the next point I want to make is this. Why? Why could Paul say that? Because it is the power of God for salvation. That's what he says in Romans 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, Paul had worked through his insecurity and trembling and weakness with this kind of association with the gospel, because primarily he had seen it work. You know, it's one thing being called to be set apart for the gospel, and then you've got, like, your first opportunity to preach the gospel, like it's virgin territory, like you don't know what's going to happen. Are you going to be lynched? You know, are you going to be completely and utterly mobbed and exiled for this gospel message? Paul does it once, and people get saved. He says, well, that wasn't so bad, you know. I'm still alive, still got all my fingers and my... You know, my hands haven't been chopped off. I'm still breathing. I'm going to preach the gospel again. Preaches the gospel again. More people get saved. Things, hang on a minute. This is, this works. The gospel works. So the first thing I want to say is, it is the power of God for salvation. And we gain confidence in the gospel by seeing it working. Paul knew by the grace of God that the gospel worked. It had saved people. If you go through the Acts of the Apostles, just flick through it. You can see right from the beginning, Acts chapter 9, Paul knew his own testimony. One minute, he's breathing, it says, murderous threats to Christians. Next minute, he's preaching boldly in the name of of Jesus. So the church multiplied, that's what it says in Acts chapter 9. Paul knew in his own life that the gospel worked. Secondly, in Acts 11, Saul into Antioch, he's teaching for a whole year, says a great number, believed. Acts 13, Elimas, the magician, struck blind, and the proconsul, believes... Acts 13, Paul in Antioch, Pisidia, the other Antioch, he preaches. It says, many Jews and devout converts followed Paul. And it says, the next Sabbath, when Paul came again to preach the gospel, it says, almost the whole city came to hear the gospel preached. And he goes on, Iconium, Lystra, back to Antioch, Syria, and so on. The difficulty I want to suggest in our day and in our age is that we can lack confidence with the gospel because we don't often see it working. Now, that might sound a bit harsh, but it does us good, even in church life, doesn't it, when you meet somebody who has recently given their lives to Christ? And you think, praise God, the gospel is still bearing fruit, it still works, it's still effective. How many of you have given your life to Christ in the last 12 months? 24 months. Praise God. We're within two years. Celebrate that. That's fantastic. Do you know, there would be many congregations in our nation where you could go through that, and I don't know how many years you'd get to before you saw a hand. And you think, probably in a congregation like that, there isn't great confidence in the gospel. Confidence comes when we understand again that actually it is the power of God... For salvation. That's yes, why well, it's good to have evangelists among us who somehow have this kind of almost irritating gift of they just just cough or sneeze part of the gospel, give an appeal, and people get saved. And this is phenomenal. A friend of mine called Noel Fellows. I don't know if any of you know him or have heard him. He wrote a book called Killing Time. He was convicted of a murder that he didn't commit served seven years in Wakefield Prison, was brutalized in prison because he was a policeman that had been wrongly convicted. After coming out of prison, gave his life to Christ, and he's now an evangelist. Whenever I've seen Noel, I've worked with him a lot over the years, whenever I've seen Noel preach the gospel, people get saved. I just, it's phenomenal. And it doesn't matter about the setting. I've had him in men's breakfast, in Hayward in Sussex, in Oxford, and when he gives an appeal, people respond. It's phenomenal. And you find people like that, they have complete confidence in the gospel because they see it work all of the time. It's just amazing how God uses his gospel. So a number of applications I want to make right at this point before moving on. If you want to start regaining confidence in the gospel every day, you want to start living out with fresh commitment the gospel in your life, first of all, relive your own gospel story. It had the power to change you. And the gospel has the power to change your friends, your relatives, your neighbors, your work colleagues. Relive your own testimony. I love giving my testimony. Primarily because I don't want other people to hear it elsewhere first. So I like telling people in our church, as I get to know them as they join the church, I like telling my testimony about the way I gave my life to Christ as a kid, the way I backslid violently against God for a number of years, lived like an unbeliever, how God graciously drew me back out of backsliding. You think, God had to work so hard to seem to get my attention, but he persevered with me. And the gospel had fruit in my life. It does us good to relive our own gospel stories. That's application number one. Application number two, chalk up some gospel successes of your own. Don't let the gospel get professionalized to evangelists who go on tour. You know, you're not waiting for Lex Losedis to revisit. You're waiting for you to know the grace of God, to have confidence with the gospel with your own friends and neighbors and start to see some of them saved. And I want to drop that right in. Paul was confident because he had seen so many people respond and radically change to the gospel. Your confidence and my confidence with the gospel will explode to a new height as we see people responding. And as Paul says later, actually, and how are people going to know unless somebody preaches to them? And we set the bar far too high, in my opinion. You know, we think about communicating the gospel. We say, oh, no, love, it's not really for me. Well, no, that's never going to happen. Because we think about what is the gospel? Well, it's the existence of God. It's the holiness of God. It's the filthiness of sin. It's the penalty of sin. It's the judgment of God. It's the atonement of Christ. You think, no wonder none of us attempt it. I mean, first of all, when are we ever going to have four days resi- re- residentially with somebody to go through it all? You know? And you think, that's not the way Paul presented the gospel. You know, he doesn't sit them down and go, he just kind of lives and proclaims the gospel to them in their own context. So when he's with Greeks, he kind of shapes the gospel to their world and talks about the kind of deities that they're worshipping and and Diana and others that they're involved with, and he kind of crafts the gospel around their society. He kind of wafts the gospel over people. The gospel is choosing how you relate to people you regularly see in everyday life. You know, I chose, when I moved to Oxford, I said to Wendy, there's a fuel station at the end of our road near to where we live, And I said to Wendy, whatever the price is at that fuel station, I'm always going to use it because I want to build relationship with the guys and girls that work there. I said to Wendy, you know, rather than saving a few pence on the liters, let's see if we can save the people over time. Let's see if we can get involved with them. And every time I go in, it's like another mini-installment of the gospel. You want to go in. It's not you go in and say, right, I haven't got any customers. God exists, and He's holy and you exist, and you're not holy, and there's a gap between you and God. And that gap is neatly, if I get my fuzzy felt board out, I'll show you, that gap is neatly bridged by a cross. And that cross represents the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't do that, do we? It's not how life is lived. You go in and you say, Hi, Vic, how's your day been today? You say, oh, it's bad. My knee's playing up again. I can hardly stand up. Vic. I want to pray for you for that. I believe God will heal, will hear prayer and sometimes he heals people. Would you like me to pray for you? That would be great. Now that is the gospel. It's like another installment. It leaves people wanting more, not less. So I hope when I leave the fuel station, he either says, hey, Matthew, that weirdo's been in again. Or he thinks, Matt, that guy's got something. You know, that is what it means. You want to cut. Chalk up successes. I've been inviting or offering to pray for people for a number of years now. I've only had one person say no. Isn't that amazing? Where you say, I'd love to pray for you. And that was a neighbor. We lived in a semi-detached house in Haywood and his wife was dying of cancer. And I said, I'd love to come and pray with you and Jan. And he said, no thanks. I said, okay, that's fine. So when the house group came round to our house, we all laid hands on the party wall and we prayed for them anyway. But that's the only time somebody said no. So chalk up your own successes. Have I told you my four-court lady shop, uh, story? Have I told you about that four-court lady when I preached last time? Dan on the way here, he said, I've probably heard all the stories before. I said, Dan, I've only got four. <laughs> uh, in Hayward Teeth, I'm waiting to use the airline to put some air in the tires of my car. We're right to a quarter past, aren't we? Okay. And, um, and there's a lady sort of dressed very professionally, sort of power suit. She's got a lovely Audi TT coupe. And she's trying to get the airline out to put air in her tires. And um, the airline isn't coming out very far and she can't. So I thought, oh, this is going to take forever, you know. And I'm not thinking the love of God and joy, peace and happiness. I'm thinking, come on, I want to go home. And um, so I went into the forecourt shop and I probably didn't waft the gospel over them. I wafted, what's wrong with your airline? you know, the lady can't get the airline out, and she said, yeah, it's broken. You know, she can do her front tires, and she's going to have to turn her car around and do the back tires, because it only comes out like 10 feet. So great. So I went out, and I said to her, you know, the airline's broken. I've just checked. You're going to have to turn your car around, and, you know, you're going to have to you know, take your time. And um, so, and I'm thinking, come on, be friendly. So this lady's there doing her tires, and I said to her, ready for this? nice car. Opening line, nice car. She said, yeah, thank you. She said, uh, I've just been made redundant and uh, the company have given me the car as part of my settlement. And I said, man, that's great. And I said, well, not that you've been made redundant, obviously, but, you know, Audi TT, that's amazing. I said, what, what job did you do? She said, oh, well, I work for this company, but she said, it's really good. The brakes really help me because I'm retraining now. I'm going to become a life coach. And I said, well, I'm a life coach. She said, oh, yeah, that's amazing. So who do you work for? Do you work for yourself? Do you work for a, a practice? I said, yeah, I work for a, for a practice. I work for a, quite a big organization, actually. And she said, are you based in Howard Seath? I said, we're all around the world. I said, we've got branches everywhere. And she said, oh, man, I'm going. I'm just going to... She said, I'm putting air in the tires. I'm going to Amsterdam tonight, where I've got a residential training program for this life coaching. Who do you work for? I thought, I'd better come clean. So I said... Actually, I'm a church pastor. And uh, I said, I'm involved in people's lives every day. And I'm involved in helping them and coaching them and you know being part of their life. She stood up and said, that's amazing. She said, my life is at a real crossroads. She said, I've just gone through a messy divorce. I've just lost my job. And I've just relocated here to have a fresh start. And she said, a Christian friend of mine has told me that when I got here, I need to find a church that does something called an alpha course. She said, do you know of any churches? As I walked back to my car to get the invitation. (laughs) And uh, so I said, yeah. I said, actually, we're running an alpha course. She said, well, I won't be able to be there uh, on Wednesday evening because I'm in Amsterdam. But she said, when I come back on Sunday, I will say hello to you. And then I'll, can I join the alpha course the following one? I said, that's absolutely fine. So anyway, I'm anchoring the meeting. Uh, and on that next Sunday, and I'm opening the meeting, and in the back row in Hayward Heath, I see my four-court lady. That morning, Phil Haddo, who is the evangelist in the Hayward Heath church, preaches the gospel really well, gives an invitation for people to respond. She gives her life to the Lord there and then that morning. Did the Alpha course as like a, her early discipleship program. And it all started with nice car. Well, it actually started with frustration and irritation about the airline. That's where it started. And I just want to encourage you, chalk up some successes of your own. Be friendly with people. I was with some church pastors recently, and then we must move on. And it bemused me. I was in a room full of church pastors. don't know what the collective noun is. Maybe you could make one up while I'm preaching. And um, one guy said, oh, it's really frustrating. I don't have any contact with people who aren't yet Christians. You know, I'm a church pastor. I'm involved in meetings all the time. And... You know, da, da, da. it went on and on and on, and I found myself saying because there's a bit of a lull afterwards, and you know, it's a great opener for a day away together, because everybody's absolutely depressed. And um, I said, I find that really difficult to believe, because we all do normal stuff. You know, you buy your fuel somewhere, you get your hair cut somewhere, you buy your food in Tesco's. You, you know, pastors don't live in like a hermetically sealed, vacuumed life. You know, they're in touch with people all the time. It's just that we don't tend to think about the gospel in those situations. Because the bar's so high, we think we've got to give them everything. we just got to waft the gospel over people wherever we touch them, wherever we meet them. So let me encourage you to chalk up some victories of your own with the gospel. Right, next one. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for, of, for the salvation of everyone who believes. is that amazing? For everyone believes. Who believes? So I want to tell you there is nobody in your life, in your contact group, in your friendship circle, in your family, in your office, in your university, in your school that is beyond the reach of the gospel. There is nobody for whom the gospel is irrelevant. Nobody. Because actually, it's the power of God for everyone who believes. There's no limitation whatsoever. And it's important that we have that kind of confidence. Paul says, I am completely confident in the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed. Actually, I'm no longer ashamed. Even if I was fearful, trembling, wondering how I'm going to meet everybody's expectations, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe, for all those who who believe, And he says there that it was first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. It's clear even in Jesus' own ministry that he came first for his own people, those in Israel. And he came with the gospel message, the kingdom message for them. And then we knew, didn't we, even through Abraham's life and ministry and through how Paul had interpreted that, that actually it was... God's plan that all people should come into the family of God. Not just the Jewish people, all people. And praise God for that. Because I'm pure Anglo-Saxon heathen Gentile. And yet I'm in the family of God. Praise God. Where would we be if this wasn't true? It's so important that we grasp that. Paul actually says, doesn't he, in Galatians 3, the scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So the gospel is not Western. Amen? It's not British. Praise God. The gospel is truly global. And we had a fantastic worship time this morning, didn't we? Going through the different languages. And I want you to have confidence with the gospel for every nationality you bump into in your life. I want you to have a confidence in here. It says, hang on a minute. Romans says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So when you meet internationals in your uh, life, in your world, I want you to have that kind of confidence, saying, hang on a minute, the, the gospel is completely relevant here. We have the joy of having some darling Pakistani neighbors we live in a semi-detached house in Oxford, and we've got fantastic Pakistani neighbors uh, who are in the other side of the semi-detached house? One of the benefits of having Islamic neighbours is that through Ramadan you get fantastic homemade curries delivered to your door for a whole month," I said to Wendy. A completely different view on Islam. The food is fantastic. You know, a cultural national dish of fish and chips is an embarrassment. I am ashamed <laughs> of British cuisine. All right. All of a sudden you realise. You know, it got to Christmas, and I said to Wendy, you know. All through Ramadan, Hussein and Sugar were so kind, bringing us courage. We should take something festive to them as I went round with my tin of Marks and Spencers biscuits. (laughs) (laughs) Happy Christmas. You think, how terrible is that? What an indictment on British culinary skill that is. But we've got these darling neighbours, and I'm thinking, how can we communicate the gospel to our Pakistani neighbours? And... uh, you just can't go in all guns blazing. We're in a relationship, friendship. We're in and out of each other's homes. We appreciate and value them, and I hope they feel the same about us. And uh, so I chatted to some friends, chatted to Dave Devinish and others, and uh, Dave Devinish said, "You really need to engage with storytelling, and hope you know, preferably in the third person. So not telling the story directly to your neighbours, but let them eavesdrop a story between you and somebody else." So they came round, and my daughter, Esme, who's 13, was baptised in February, and she had a great testimony about how God had spoken to her about that. And uh, so we had our neighbours in, and I thought, here's the opportunity. So I said, Esme, have you practised your testimony for Sunday? And Esme said, yeah, why? I said, let me hear it again. I'm in the kitchen. Let me hear your testimony again. Tell me your testimony. I'll make sure it's okay for Sunday. So neighbours are there and we're making drinks and as we said, okay, well, I became a Christian when I was... And I thought, fantastic. Yeah, we've got to think of ways that we can communicate the Gospel because we're not ashamed of the Gospel. Paul says, doesn't he, in verse 14, he says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish... That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. So he says in Romans 1, verse 14, just before we read 16, it says, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks. This is a fascinating. I want you just to get this for a moment, and then we're going to close up and pray. When it comes to the gospel, Paul feels like he's obligated. It's not a very attractive word, really, but... The root word is in debt. Paul says, I am in debt to the gospel, both to Jews and to Greeks. What did Paul mean when he said that? It's like Jonathan giving me, which would be very, I'm very open to this, okay? It's like Jonathan giving me a thousand pounds and saying, Matt, can you have this thousand pounds? Because I'd like you to give it to Mark. You happy with that, Mark? Okay. You're making two people very happy. So I say to Jonathan, so Jonathan says to me, I want to give you a thousand pounds because I'd like you to pass it on to Mark. So he said, okay, I'll take that, Jonathan. I'll take that. And I, all of a sudden, I'll bank it. So I've banked this thousand pounds. But now I'm obligated because I've been given something that isn't simply for me. I'm just the custodian of it. My task is to give it to the person it's intended for. And Paul says that's what it's like for the gospel. He has received, so you are our father God, all right? So he has entrusted the gospel to Paul. But it's not simply for Paul to say, isn't that lovely, I've got the gospel. It's made such a lovely difference. He's indebted to the gospel because God's given it to him for somebody else. It's for Mark. And Paul says, I am in debt to the gospel. I haven't discharged it yet. I haven't given it away yet. It's burning inside of me. So Mark, here's the gospel. Jesus Christ loves you. He died for you. If you believe in him, your sins can be forgiven. You have a friendship with God. Would you like to say a prayer? Yay. You're going to respond? That's how Paul feels about the gospel. And fourthly, why? The fourth, uh, third point, it's the power of God for salvation. It includes everybody. And lastly, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Paul's argument is a logical one. He justifies it. And he says, I'm not ashamed. He then goes through and explains why. Because it is the power of God for all who believe, and through it, a righteousness from God is revealed. Now, if you go on, and we haven't got time this morning, but if you go on and read Romans chapter 1 and Romans 2, you'll see that there's a a kind of a wrath from God being revealed. On planet Earth, that's what Paul says. In fact, we read it, didn't we, in verse 19 and 20, right at the beginning of today's sermon, where it actually says there's a wrath from God being revealed. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness. And Paul, that's scary, because Paul says that's present tense, and when you read through Romans chapter 1, it explains what the wrath of God looks like. Because we look out and we say, well, where is the wrath of God? I can't see thunder, can't see lightning. Where is it being revealed? And three times it says God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. And Romans chapter 1 and 2 says actually the wrath of God is revealed by God taking his hand off and saying, look, if you want to follow sin that badly, you go right ahead and follow it. If you really want unrighteousness that badly, Then you go right ahead. You pursue unrighteousness. I'm here for you. I've made it clear what I want from you. But actually, there's the wrath of God is a frightening thing when it says He gave them over. He gave them over because how can you ever be saved if God has given humanity over to unrighteousness? How are we ever going to be saved? Romans 1:16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And through it, a new righteousness from God is revealed. So the only hope for our nation, the only hope for your city, with all of its unrighteousness, with all of its evidence of the wrath of God being revealed by God taking his hand off, by God uh, giving people over to what they seem to want, not knowing what it is they're asking for. The only answer is for us to have confidence in the gospel. It's to live it out. It's to communicate it in every and any way possible to everybody we come into contact with. To display the values and the qualities of the gospel when we live, how we speak, how we conduct ourselves, to be kind to people. It says the kindness of God leads to repentance. So we demonstrate what God is like to people. It is like a a window in on the gospel and its message. So let me encourage you. Be confident with the gospel. This week, go for it with all of your heart. Speak to your friends, your neighbors. Tell them your own testimony. Seek to see some breakthrough of your own with the gospel in your own life, seeing some of your friends making progress. Amen?